If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So follow the way of love. This is the word of the Lord. In the 2003 Christmas rom-com Love Actually, one of the first scenes is that of a wedding. The newly declared couple are about to process together down the aisle when the organ lets off the traditional wedding march and the curtains are pulled back to reveal a gospel choir, which starts off a surprise flash mob of the Beatles' All You Need Is Love, with trumpets and French horn players popping up out of the pews. It's a, it's a lovely, feel-good moment as the choir sings, and over and over and over again, you hear to this happy couple, all you need is love. It's pretty easy to talk about love at a wedding. After all, to quote another classic pop song, at a wedding, love is very much in the air. Here are two people who love each other so much that they are committing their whole lives to each other. So it is no surprise then that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a favorite wedding text. It is a reminder, it is a good reminder to this newly minted couple that this is what their life together now is to look like. But 1 Corinthians 13 was not initially written to address romantic love. Paul is not writing to a couple on the eve of their nuptials or to a long married couple who wants to renew their vows. He's not writing to people who are already so in love with each other that the words simply affirm what's already there. Paul is writing to a community 
of believers who need to remember that the foundation of their life together is love. Because in the Corinthian church, there is not a lot of love lost between some of its members. The Corinthian church is a diverse church in a society that didn't have a lot to do with diversity. Social conventions bound people to associate with folks of a similar class, ethnicity, religion, and gender. But in this church, gathered together, there are married people and unmarried people, There are widows and widowers. There are young people and old. There are converted Gentiles and there are long-standing Jews. And not just any Jews, but some powerful figures who served as former synagogue leaders and so carry a lot of clout. A lot of the members of the Corinthian church are from the lower classes, but there are some extremely wealthy people as well, including the city treasurer, There are people in this church who are free, and there are people in this church who are slaves. And everyone in this church comes with a different set of skills and gifts. And we may think nothing of this kind of diversity today, but it is important to understand just how radical this community would have been at the time. Social rules meant you knew your lane and you stuck to it. So the idea of a slave praying with his master, the idea of the rich and the poor associating together of older people sitting in the company of children, this just was not done. This was a new thing. And it's not going terribly well for the Corinthians. This diversity has dissolved into discord. Part of the problem is that people are debating whose teachings they should follow. Paul, Apollos, Peter, or Jesus. And so the church has divided into these four factions based on who your chosen leader is, and jealousy and rivalry abounds. Another problem that's cropping up in the Corinthian church is is that there are different levels of spiritual knowledge and maturity in the church. And so there are different ideas of what people should and should not be allowed to do. In the ancient Roman world, it was common for people to offer sacrifices to the gods, to idols. And then the leftover portion could be eaten or sold. And any believer might come across such food at a civic festival, or in the home of a friend who's a non-believer, or at a, a gathering, a party of city leaders and politicians. And there were some believers in the church who said, look, I know that an idol is just a hunk of metal and that this food means nothing, so why can't I eat it? Why should I pass up a free meal? But there are other believers who might see this and think that eating food offered to idols, and thus maybe idol worship, is acceptable. So there's this debate happening about rights versus needs. Then there's the issue of wealthy people eating the Lord's Supper together at the exclusion of the poorer people. 
And last but not least, in, in chapter 12, right before our text, Paul speaks about the diversity of gifts and skills, correcting the idea that some of those gifts are more important than others. So you've got pride over spiritual gifts, you've got class divisions and arrogance, you've got boasting in spiritual maturity and a demand to exercise rights at the expense of others, and you've got insistence that your faction of the church led by your leader is the right one. This is a diverse church and a divided one. Now, we are not struggling with quite the same things as the Corinthian church, but our church, and I think every church, is still, is always, trying to figure out what it looks like to live in community together. If we think about the diversity within the Corinthian church, there are a lot of things that we recognize. In this church, in CCRC, there are married and unmarried people. There are widows and widowers. There are young people and old. There are people who joined the church and joined the faith later in life and people who have always grown up in the church. There are people from Holland and Nigeria and India. There are church leaders and community leaders here. And there are people who tend to hang back a bit. There are wealthy people and less wealthy people. And there are people with different skill sets and spiritual gifts. As a church, we want to be welcoming, but we still struggle with cliques, gravitating towards those we've known for a long time. There are different opinions about controversial topics, different ideas about what's right, about what church should look like. And there are different skill sets, there are different spiritual gifts, and not everyone always feels like their gift is respected. Just like the Corinthian church, there is diversity here. And it is all too easy for diversity to turn into division. So how do we keep that from happening? How do we live together amongst a diversity of people and viewpoints and backgrounds? Well, Paul says it pretty unequivocally in chapter 13. What you need is love. It doesn't matter, he says, if you are the most spiritually and theologically knowledgeable person in the planet, if you don't have love. It doesn't matter if your faith is so strong that you can move entire mountains if you don't have love. It doesn't matter if you have the spiritual gift that everyone secretly wishes they had if you don't have love. It doesn't matter if you make the biggest show of your commitment to the faith if you don't have love. After all, he says in verses 8 to 12, these things are fleeting. Spiritual gifts can change over time. Knowledge fades or is expanded. You might even be able to prophesy, but when that prophecy comes to pass, what are you left with? Now, an important caveat before we continue. Paul is not saying that these things are unimportant. Should we strive for knowledge of the Lord? Absolutely. 
Should we be passionate our, about our faith? 100%. Should we use our gifts to the best of our abilities? Yes, we should. Should we seek to be faithful in everything that we do? Of course. At the end of the day, love is not all that we need. But it is the first thing that we need. It is the foundation, the thing that holds us together in such a way that as we strive for knowledge, as we put our gifts into practice, as we welcome people who are different from us, as we seek to be faithful, as we participate in this dance of diversity that is the Church of Jesus Christ, that diversity does not become divisive, but delightful. And then this is the really key piece of this passage. This is the crux of the matter. This love is not a passive thing that exists between people. In 1 Corinthians 13, love is not a noun, just a thing that we hope exists here. Love is a verb. Love is a thing we do. And so what does this love look like? Well, Paul spells it out for us. Love looks like being patient with each other. The word here is makrothumai, and it doesn't just mean that we wait something out, that we wait patiently for something to happen, but that we are mild, that we are slow to vengeance, that we are patient in bearing the offenses of others. We don't lash out in anger when we feel that we have been wronged, but slowly, patiently seek resolution. Love looks like kindness, acting benevolently towards one another, going above and beyond for each other. Love looks like telling the truth, you know, sometimes when we are confronted with something outside our comfort zone or someone or some idea that's, that's different, that's a little unsettling, we can feel a bit threatened. And it's easy when we feel threatened to want to protect ourselves, and so we create a, a narrative about that person or that idea, casting them in a negative light so we can hold them at bay and so protect ourselves. But love means that we represent people and ideas fairly and honestly. We tell the truth about other people and about ourselves and what's going on inside of us. Love looks like shelter. When Paul says that love bears all things or love protects all things, he uses the word stege, which refers to a protective cover that holds off or shields against something that threatens. And this idea, this brought, brought to mind uh, images that came out in 2011 after a suicide bomber killed 23 Coptic Christians in Cairo and radical Muslim extremists were blamed for this attack. And so people took to the streets in Cairo, Muslims and Christians alike, protesting the bomb and in an uproar about this. And then when the Muslims had to kneel in the streets to pray, the Christian protesters formed a ring around them, 
holding hands, facing outward, protecting them from other angry protesters. Love shelters, love protects all things. Love looks like endurance, sticking it out with people, even people who are maybe hard to stick it out with. Love looks like having faith in people, believing in people, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Love doesn't jump to conclusions about someone's motives. Love looks like hope. Love lives in expectancy, trusting that good will come. And if this then is what love looks like, it's easy enough to see what love is not. If love is patient, then it cannot be quick to become angry. This doesn't mean that loving people are never allowed to be angry. There is much in the world to be angry about. But it does mean that we don't fly off the handle anytime we feel that we have been wronged. It means we don't boil over, swept up in our own desire for revenge. If love is kind, giving generously to others, then it is not self-serving. When we love, we don't put ourselves and our own wants first. If love is about truth-telling, then it cannot bear injustice. It takes no delight in seeing people falsely accused or unfairly burdened. And if love looks like shelter and protection, then it means we can't just choose to protect those people we think have earned that protection. Love doesn't keep a tally of all the times someone has done us wrong. Love shelters all people, even those we might call our enemy. In short, love does not harm people but seeks their flourishing. And it isn't just a, a warm, fuzzy feeling that we get, but rather, says commentator Shively Smith, this kind of love is an up at dawn, feet on the ground, tools in hand, working kind of love. It builds communities. It nurtures positive social interactions and not just social networks. Love is the way by which we talk to each other, eat with each other, and fellowship with each other. Does that sound like a lot of work? Yes. But can you imagine a community marked by this kind of love? And this is what God calls us into. And it's what God makes possible for us. Because he has shown us what this love looks like. A love that didn't strike back at enemies. A love that sought no vengeance. A love that patiently bore hardship. A love that stuck it out with the most obstinate of people. A love that went to the cross to save the very people that put him there. And so the Apostle John writes in his first letter, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Our church exists with the mission of helping people grow in relationship with God and each other and our community. And what does it mean to grow in relationship with each other? It means we live in love. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, help us to love. May we see in each person a child loved by you. And may we work, act, and pray for each other, spurred on by the love you first had for us. May we love not just when it's easy, but also when it's hard. Bring us together as a community in the face of diverse opinions and experiences and languages and backgrounds so that people might see even a fraction of your love through us and so might endeavor to find the source of that love. Help us to love each other, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.